Hello and welcome back to HIF Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you Anne Cleves OBE, interviewed by Festival Programming Chair Basim Khan, live at the 2023 Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Sit back, relax and enjoy an insightful and entertaining discussion with a crime writing legend. Now, one of the privileges and roles of the chair of the festival is to introduce each of the special guests and their interviewers. And now I'll do this particular session backwards. I'll introduce the interviewer first and then our special guest. Now, our interviewer is a man who has been described variously as the most charming, (laughs) the wittiest, the most erudite, the handsomest and the best cricketer in crime fiction. (laughs) His name is Vasim Khan. Oh, it's me. I did not write this introduction, I promise you. I'm blushing, you can't tell, but I'm, I'm blushing. <laughs> what can I tell you about my guest this evening? The cold hard numbers, eight million sales, three TV series, every crime writing award you can shake a stick at, and a suite of characters that have become as beloved in the national imagination as Paddington the Bear and Boris Johnson. Oh, sorry, sorry, that's a typo, sorry, sorry. Anne Cleves is one of the UK's most successful novelists and widely recognised as a do-gooder and a bloody good egg. But, ladies and gentlemen, this is where it gets sinister. Behind this polite, wouldn't-hurt-a-fly facade lurks the cold-blooded heart of a killer. Over the course of 30 books, Anne Cleves has dispatched dozens of unsuspecting victims in ways both brutal and bloody. Strangled, knifed, shot, drowned, bludgeoned. For all we know, she's looking out at this audience, wondering just who would make a good victim (laughs) for a red-hot poker up the fundament. Don't be fooled, ladies and gentlemen. I've known Anne for a very long time. She's ruthless, the Genghis Khan of crime writing, conquering new territories daily, laying waste to all those in her path. Yes, she may not have pillaged or burnt any villages yet, but it's only a matter of time. Today we are going to get behind this urbane facade and learn a bit about the real Anne Cleves. Please welcome her to the stage. (laughs) Just wait, Baz Khan, I'll get you back. (laughs) Well, let's start at the beginning, Anne, let's start. So you grew up in a very small uh, place. And is it right that you were the teacher's pet at school? No, it it was complete opposite. My dad was the teacher. Well, that makes you the teacher's pet in my book. No, no. He was much harder on us than he was on the other kids. Yeah, very small school, 30 kids, 15 infants, 15 juniors, one room, curtain down the middle. (laughs) Really? Uh, And is that why you write many of the books that you write are now set in these kind of small, uh, villagey settings? I've never lived in a city. Well, I lived in a city briefly. Mm-hmm. when I did, um, took a gap year before university and hated it. I had bronchitis, I think, the whole time I was there. I wasn't, I'm not made for city living. Yeah, and I'm the exact opposite. I've only ever <laughs> lived in London and, and Bombay, um, which, <laughs> which you can imagine. I don't know how many people live in Harrogate, but I dare say a few less than the, uh, the two, 20 million that live in Bombay. Um, now, moving the clock forward before we get to your writing, because this is quite important to your later development as a writer. Now, you met your late husband at a bird-watching retreat where you were an assistant cook? Yeah. Is that right? Um, How did I get there? Yeah. Well, having done my gap year in London, looking after um, a family of kids, I was a community service volunteer. I went off to university to read English, But I think I'd been spoilt because I was in the real world in London. You know, I was looking after these kids whose mum had left them and the dad worked on the railways and he'd been brought up in care and he didn't want his kids brought up in care. So two of us went in and looked after them. And sitting in Sussex University with a lot of um, quite posh people, quite posh students, because it was quite a trendy university at the time, sitting around drinking wine and talking about poetry didn't really do it for me. 
<laughs> so I dropped out. And um, in a pub in Putney, met somebody who was going off to be assistant warden in the Bird Observatory in Fair Isle. And he was moaning about it and saying it was wet and windy and he wasn't sure if he wanted to go. And I said something like, well, I wouldn't mind spending a summer in Fair Isle. And he said, well, if you're sure, they're desperate for an assistant cook. So off I went. I didn't at that point realise that Fair Isle was one of the Shetland Islands. <laughs> and that it was a long way north. Like and 14 hours in the boat from Aberdeen to Shetland. Yeah. And could you actually cook? No. Oh. <laughs> Did I know anything about birds? No. They must have been desperate. But the first year I was there, I was assistant, so I was mostly peeling tatties and cleaning bathrooms. But I, I assume that at some point you were able to cook something. So what is a sort of Anne Cleave special? I can... I, every day we had to cook two dozen scones, so I'm still pretty... I can do a mean scone. <laughs> well, Betty's tea room is in no danger, I suspect. Uh, um, uh, just... Uh, <laughs> Well, you're in Whitley Bay on the 7th of August. Come along if you live in the North East. I will bake you some scones. I'll hold you to that, Anne. Now, you and I met quite a few years ago now, and it was a, a momentous meeting of a famous writer and somebody nobody had ever heard of. Because um, I walked... I remember... I can't remember where it was, maybe Yeovil. I walked out of the train station, and I'd forgotten where I had to go exactly. And I looked around, and there was the famous Anne Cleves. So I sort of sidled up to Anne and I said, you're Anne Cleves and I think we've got an event in the same building. Would you mind if we shared a taxi? You know, I didn't want to spend the taxi fare with Anne Cleves. <laughs> but during, the, during that, that taxi ride, I've got a great picture of it. Um, we started talking and we realised that we both have this passion for libraries because yeah. of how instrumental they've been in our careers. Because it was a library gig that we were doing, it was a wasn't it? Gig. In Yeovil, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So could you tell us why you're so passionate about libraries? I, well, for so, I mean, for me, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for libraries. I wouldn't have been able to read all the books that I've read if it weren't for libraries. We didn't have that many books at home, but we did do the ritual Saturday morning trip to the library. And a wonderful... Um, library assistant there called Mrs Gregory who knew what I liked and she'd save the books for me behind the counter and bring them out you're like this magician bringing these books out and I can remember just you know by the time I'd walked home I would have finished it but um, yeah so that got me got me reading but then I think people forget really we think of that libraries are just for readers but well-funded libraries also support writers. So you know that I was, you know, everybody knows I've been writing for 20 years and published for 20 years before I had any commercial success. And what kept me going, what kept the publishers able to carry on publishing me was the fact that libraries bought the hardback copies of the books. They had a book fund that allowed them to buy new authors, authors who weren't terribly successful, and they would promote them to their readers. So libraries aren't only good for readers, they're brilliant for writers if we fund them properly. Absolutely, and you and I have many, had many conversations because we're both passionate advocates for, uh, for libraries, and, and we, we get really hot under the collar, don't we, with the short-sightedness. You know, if we want to live in a society that values 20 years from now education and books, we have to understand that not everybody can afford to buy books. Now, I grew up in a very poor household. My parents were from the subcontinent. My father was not a literate man, and he, would, he couldn't countenance the idea of paying for made-up stuff by white people, in his words. <laughs> um, so I had to rely on the library, and I came across the wonderful Terry Pratchett's Discworld series when I was a teenager, and I thought, well, this looks really easy. I think I'll do this. And I wrote my first novel, Age 17, which was a comic fantasy. I love Pratchett. Sent it into some agents and confidently sat back um, <laughs> to be a rich and famous writer. There's one problem with that cunning plan. The book was crap. But, you know, that's what you expect at age 17. But without that initial ability to find those books, yeah. I would not be sitting well, here Well, when today. I first started writing, I thought I was going to write a great work of, a great work <laughs> of literary fiction. And I started writing it and I got a little way in. And I think I'm okay at creating character. 
but I am so bad at plot. I crap at plot. And so, you know, I got a little way into it, and, and it was so boring. I said, well, who would want to read this? If I'm bored by it, everybody else is going to be bored by it. Then I killed somebody off. I was away. <laughs> There's a solution for all of life's problems. You know, you can't quite bake that perfect cake. Just kill somebody and you're away. Um, now, your career changed through serendipity and so much of an author's life or an author's career hinges on those, those life-changing moments that you cannot predict. No. So can you tell us about the moment that changed it all for you? What, for Korea? Well, the Vera oh, moment. Uh, yeah, but that, yes, I suppose, I suppose, but actually what really, really made me able to give up, to give up writing, to give up work and write, sorry, give up work, was, um, was Raven Black, was the first of the Shetland books. That, that was the first book that allowed me to concentrate Well, I was referring to the fact that I think it was a TV producer who discovered Vera yeah. in a second-hand bookshop. Is that, that right? That, that story. Is, that, oh, I'll tell you that story. That's a nice story. Yeah. So the first Vera book was called The Crow Trap, and it didn't sell very well at all. I mean, it was it really bombed. And so there were lots of, of books in remainder bookshops and then ended up in second-hand bookshops. And one of them was in an Oxfam shop in Crouch End in North London. And somebody went in looking for a book to take on holiday. Nothing at all unusual in that, except the person who picked it up was called Elaine Collins, and she was books executive for ITV Studios. And that's how Vera came to be on the telly. I think every crime writer in London now goes and drops their books off <laughs> in the Oxfam shop in Crouch End. Well, I've been trying it for 10 years. <laughs> now, Vera clearly changed the trajectory of your career. And now we are up to The Rising Tide, the 11th novel in the series. And this one, which I've had great delight in reading, opens in a very poignant fashion with a reunion of old friends uh, before things take a dark turn. As you say, you, you know, things, aren't, things aren't going too well, you just kill somebody off. Uh, but it's a, it's, it's a locked room mystery, but with the entire island as our, our locked room. And Vera is, uh, at the beginning of this book, off to a book festival in the north, uh, in North Yorkshire, with her <laughs> friend Joanna. But unfortunately, she's not able to go because she's called to the scene of the crime, which is Holy Island, known to us soft namby-pamby southerners as Lindisfarne. Now, Vera has been there many times with Hector, her father, and she's acted as a lookout while he raided the nests of wading birds, we are told. So, you know, that whole bird-watching yeah, experience all comes that back. fitted in nicely. But why Holy Island? Um, it didn't start off being set in Holy Island, but this was my lockdown book. This was the book that I was writing when we were not able to do anything else. And I really struggled at the beginning of lockdown because there were... All I could do was focus on the numbers and the daily briefings. And do you remember, just panic-stricken, really, not understanding what was going on in the world. And I think for the first time, I had that real gut realisation that I wasn't immortal. You know, I'm getting on. You would think I would recognise that someday I'm going to die. But, and I knew it intellectually, but at that point, it really hit me. And I think because of that... It was looking at older people coming to terms with their age, coming to terms with their legacy and what they might have still to do and what they still wanted to do. And so I, I set it up as a school reunion. It's 50 years since the, these people have, have been in the sixth form, met in the sixth form. So they're, they're sort of in their mid to late 60s. And I suppose I wanted somewhere that had a special significance for them and for me. And so, yeah, Holy Island is, has got that almost mystical significance, I think, for people in Northumberland. And so I decided to set it there. And it, and it does give us that, that idea of not quite a locked room, but an enclosed mm -hmm. community, because when the tide's in, you can't escape. And do you have friends from, from sort of that far back that you still... 
Yeah, right touch and, and that came through with, with lockdown as well because I had already had one very, very close friend who I'd kept in touch with that I'd known, who, who I'd known since I was 11 and we meet up every year and I go and stay. She, she still lives in North Devon, so when I go down to North Devon to, um, to research the Venn books, I stay with her. Uh, but because suddenly everybody was Zooming, so there were other friends that we'd got we'd known from those days and we got and it was it was brilliant because we still laughed at the same things and we felt that we were on the same wavelength <laughs> and 50 years on we were still still friends and that also fed into the book and presumably you've not tried to kill any of these no, friends as, not yet. as your characters <laughs> clearly are, are busy doing I, I hated my school friends i not in touch with any of them. <laughs> now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just read something to you from your book. So one of the characters is called Annie. And she says of, um, of Vera, It was her size and those awful clothes, as if she didn't give a shit what she looked like or what people thought of her. Yeah. So how deliberate were you when creating Vera in, in this way? You know, you've clearly created a character to... Uh, to to appeal to readers in a way that's uncommon. So not the beautiful, beautiful, you know, police detective. No. The exact opposite. Yeah, it didn't really work out like that because um, I started the, the Crow Trap, the first of the Vera books, wasn't going to have a detective in it because I had a, a new editor who really didn't like tra traditional crime fiction, didn't like traditional detective stories. And the person who was making most money for her at the time was, was Nanette Walters, who wrote, um, I suppose, um, Psychological Suspense. And she wanted me to have a go at, at writing that. You know, I, was, I would have done anything just to keep published. So I thought, well, I'll have a go at that. And so I, I set up this story about three women who were doing an environmental survey in the Northumberland National Park. And I got so far with it and I mean, one of them would have to die, obviously, because otherwise I couldn't <laughs> write the book. And one of them would die. But then I was really stuck. And I was writing um, a funeral scene. And it's Raymond Chandler, isn't it? He said, if you're stuck with a plot, have a guy burst through a door with a gun. <laughs> I don't do guns. It takes too much research. But So I just was writing these and had the door burst open. And... Well, just one of those miraculous moments that sometimes happens when you're writing in Burst Vera Stanhope. And I had her name. I describe her as looking more like a bag lady than a detective. You know, she's, she wears those, um, those sandals that climbers wear and her feet are mucky and her skin's not very good. And I don't, I, it's quite interesting to unpick where she might have come from. And she did look a little bit like one of my daughter's teachers. <laughs> uh, but, but I think she came from, and I still go back and do, do stuff on that school, and all the teachers, sort of the younger teachers who worked with this woman, sort of snigger, we know where you got her from. <laughs> she was a lovely woman. Um, but I think she grew out of the the formidable spinsters that I knew in those small towns when I was living in villages. The, I was born in the mid-50s, so not that long after the end of the war. And there were a lot of single women who'd, I don't know, lost, lost men during the war or certainly decided they'd rather be, sick, they'd rather be single than 1950s housewives. Uh, you know, if you were a teacher, you had to give up work if you married. And I remember them as... Um, infants, teachers, hospital matrons, and they, they were so competent and so authoritative, yeah. but they didn't care what they looked like. You know, they yeah. wore the, the tweed skirts with the frayed hems and the thick stockings and the sensible <laughs> shoes. Yeah, well, Vera certainly has more than a bit of the matron about her. I mean, she, she scares me rigid. Um, <laughs> now, and there's another character in this book, Rick. Who, um, who gets, who, who's, who's you know, a broadcast personality for many, many years, and gets himself into hot water. And um, you know, someone says about him, uh, because he's accused of sexual misconduct, someone says about him, he wouldn't have tried it on with his younger colleagues. He might, if he hadn't tried it on, he might still have his show on the BBC. 
very topical given recent events. Yeah, I did write this quite a long time ago. <laughs> but, but do you think writers have this obligation to mirror topical events in the society that they see around them? I don't know, really. I think we, we can all write what we want to write. I don't think we should be prescriptive, and I think that's why crime fiction is so successful, because it is such a broad church, you know, from the real pacey serial killer thriller to things that are more quiet and domestic. And I think we can write what we want as long as we're not, as long as readers want to read it and we're not slanderous or rude about anyone. And I did write that before those scandals <laughs> in the BBC. Um, and I, th I was quite interested as well at looking at... It was written just after the Me Too movement, I suppose. And I was quite interested in looking at... Because some of the older women who knew Rick when he was younger feel almost like a sense of responsibility because they knew what he was like. They knew he was a bit of a lech. They knew he did things that they weren't comfortable with. I mean, not, not horribly, but put, made them feel a bit uneasy. And they think, I should have said something. I should have stopped it. And I think there are quite a lot of women of my generation who why did we put up with that? Younger women wouldn't put up with it, but we did. We put up with the comments and the unwanted touches. You know, nothing particularly aggressive or violent, but we did, and we didn't say anything. Partly because we didn't want to be thought uncool or we didn't want to be stand out. We, did, we, we wanted to be loved and to liked. Yeah. And so that's really what I'm exploring with that character and that storyline. And I think crime fiction really gives us a really good lens to do things like that because, mm -hmm. you know, under the guise of entertainment, we have license to talk about these dark issues because, you know, crime books are by their very nature dark and looking at dark topics. And, you know, the, the books that I write, for instance, in, it's set in 1950s India, they're really looking at that period just after 300 years of the British presence on the subcontinent, which was quite dark for, for many, many Indians, certainly. Mm. Uh, but then in 1947, when independence came along, it wasn't the case that every Brit just went home. You know, there's tens of thousands still in the country and India had to negotiate a new relationship with the Brits that were left behind. And, you know, I always say this, that not every Brit who went to India was a sinner. Not everyone was Clive of India. Not every Indian was a saint. So to be able to say that out loud after all of these years when you know history has been written by its winners and you only get that history th mainly through middle-aged white men, nothing wrong with that, but that other side of the equation has not really been depicted in fiction. So it gives me great joy to be able to shine a spotlight on, on those kind yeah, of and social issues. And you issues. do it beautifully. And well, it's lovely of you to say, yeah. yeah um, no. Now, let's talk a little bit about your latest uh, project, which is coming out in a few weeks' time. And that is The Raging Storm. Yeah. Um, it's coming out at the end of August, I believe. And it's the third book in the Two Rivers series, following The Long Call and The Heron's Cry. Okay. However, Anne, I thought, as the audience might be slightly bored of hearing me speak, I thought I'd invite, I'd take the liberty of inviting a guest interviewer on to ask you about this series, a mutual friend of ours. Now, do you remember last year when we, you invited me to your hometown of Whitley Bay? Yes. <laughs> we were honoured by a very special appearance by none other than your most famous creation. Oh, no. <laughs> You're all right, pet. <laughs> How have you been? Now, what's all this I'm hearing about a new detective in your life, pet? Am I not good enough for you anymore? Tell us about this natty fella, Matthew Venn. Yeah, Matthew Venn. I'm getting to like Matthew Venn. I wasn't sure at first, but I do like him. So the, the friend that I was telling you about, the friend that I'm still in touch with who lives in North Devon, when my, my husband died five years ago and I just wanted to get away, you know, not from the memories and not from my family, but from the the pity and the compassion of other people. So I ran away back down to see my friend in North Devon for a bit. And we were walking around and I was talking to her and she was telling me about when she grew up. And I knew that she belonged to this, this um, quite evangelical community but didn't really have any details. But she was telling me about 
yes, if she if she made a big fuss and lost her and and told them that she'd lost her faith, she would have been unfellowshipped. She would have been cast out. And that made me think about a character who might have been part of this very very certain faith. I call them the Baron Brethren in in the book, sort of a sort of Plymouth Brethren, but not quite. And that you would feel quite, your world would feel really chaotic and unanchored. And you might then decide that you wanted to join the police service to give you that, to anchor you, and to give you that sense of community and honour and duty. And so that's that's how I thought, I, I started off with creating this character, Matthew Venn. But then the people who'd most looked after me after Tim died, who scooped me up after the hospital and let me cry on their shoulders and gave me tea and wine and are still looking after me now, are a gay couple, Martin and Paul. And because they were rattling around in my head, suddenly Matthew became gay. And I wanted, I suppose, to celebrate their relationship and because they were such good friends and had looked after me so well. And would be great friends of Tim's too. And and then that worked for the plot because to have a their son being gay made it reconciliation with such hardline evangelicals much harder to and, achieve. And what is the plot of the Raging Storm? The Raging Storm starts with um, somebody, a kind of local celebrity, a sailor adventurer who's on the telly because he's walked to the North Pole or sailed down the Amazon blowing into a smudge on the North Devon coast in a storm. And he turns up at the local pub, the Maiden's Prayer. And everybody's a bit excited because he is, he's quite famous and he's a local lad done good and what's he doing here? And he won't tell them why he's there. He's just waiting for a visitor. Nobody knows who this mysterious visitor is. And a couple of weeks later, he just dis- disappears. But there's a storm and the lifeboat is called out uh, because a, a shout's been called into the Coast Guard and the lifeboat finds this guy, he's called Jem Roscoe, dead in a, in a small boat. And yeah. that's how the story starts, with a body, obviously. I'm going to take you back to a rising tide for a second. Vera's second-in-command, D.C. Holly, oh, yeah. well, one of her officers. And she says this about Vera. Vera was bloated, idle, when the inspector leaned against the desk at the front of the room to address her minions. The fat on her bum spread and made unsightly bulges in those dreadful crimpoline trousers. What are you saying about my bum pet? (laughs) I've been working out, buns buns of steel pet. (laughs) Yeah, cricket, I know, that time of year. Tell us about Matthew Venn's identity as a gay policeman. How does it affect his ability to do his job in a sometimes prejudiced environment. Yeah, I, did, I didn't want to do a, a big song and dance about him being gay. So there might be... I, I'm talking again to, to other gay friends and them saying, sometimes you don't know if your boss dislikes you because he's just not very nice or you're not doing very well or because he is prejudiced. And I wanted to do that sort of... Uh, just a bit of uneasiness and not being sure what's going on there. But I think... I think we're we're actually fairly accepting now. Most people are really accepting. And I wanted to celebrate. In fact, it's the only happy marriage I think I've ever written about, Matthew and Jonathan. And I love Jonathan making him a bit more relaxed and a bit more open and exploring those things. And um, I'm not really looking at 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 the system, you know, the... The, the idea that, that the whole the whole police service is prejudiced. It's more about looking at him and how he develops himself as an individual. And another TV series. Now, how involved do you get with these series, the TV series? I don't. I try not to because all three, The Long Call, um, Vera and Shetland, were made by Silver Print Pictures, so it's the same production team that makes them. And they're doing all right so far. <laughs> um, they know how to make good television better than I do. So, and right from the start, I decided not to meddle. Elaine Collins, who picked up the book in the Oxfam shop, 
I could tell was a reader. I could tell she really understood the characters. The only stipulation I made was that the wherever they set the books, that the, the, the script writers have to come and spend some time there because I think my, my, one of my daughters is a, is a human geographer and I think that's what I do really, that we grow out of the place where we grew up, we're part of that community and what writers do is look at the individual within their community and within the landscape. So it's really important to me that the script writers come up and spend some time in the places or go down in, in this case of Devon. But after that, I don't meddle because I think I have the freedom to write the books and I love doing that. But they, the, the production team should have the creative freedom to make the television shows that they want to make. And, and because of that, we get on really well. Yeah. I and even get invited to the rap parties because <laughs> they know I'm not going to meddle. And you also get on well with the locals of all of these places because you've, you, you're, you're a sort of book tourism phenomenon, <laughs> right? I mean, you've got the keys to Shetland. So. Shetland, yeah, that's more about the TV show because that shows the magnificent landscape. But yeah, since the TV show went on screen, tourism to Shetland has gone up by 46%. <laughs> Which is, which is just at the right time as the oil's going. So. Well, yeah. well, let's quickly talk about that series. So where did the idea for the Shetland series come from? Well, I, be, I, I worked in the Bird Observatory on Ferrar, which is the, the most remote inhabited island in the UK and part of the Shetland group, sort of halfway between Shetland mainland and Orkney. And um, I must have done something right because I was invited back to be head cook the next year. <laughs> so I went back. So I had two seasons there. I met my husband there. He came as a visiting bird watcher uh, in my first year and came back the second year and, and um, worked on one of the crofts intermittently. It was quite hard work. I think he did one day on, one day off for food and homebrew. Uh, so that's how I got to know Shetland. And then... Went back, you know, went back to visit friends and things, but mostly to, to Fair Isle. And then a very rare bird turned up in Shetland, um, about 2004, something like that. And my husband was a passionate birder, you know, one of those that really likes to see new birds. And so my Christmas present to him was a day trip to Shetland, which is, you know, mad. Drive to Aberdeen overnight on the boat, get there at seven in the morning. Wait until it gets light, because in midwinter it's dark until about 10. Set up his telescope, looking out over Kiminlaw. And luckily the bird was still there. It would have been a bit of a bummer. It had flown off overnight <laughs> after all that effort. It was, um, it was an American coot. It's quite like a British coot. <laughs> But it was a beautiful day. It doesn't snow that often in Shetland, though the last time I was there, it snowed. when I was there last winter, it did snow a lot. But it had snowed and then frozen on top of the snow and it was beautiful. The sun came up. There were all these ravens sort of dancing, uh, very black against the snow. And because I'm a crime writer, I thought, oh, if there was blood as well. <laughs> it would be kind of mythic, you know, like fairy stories, like Sleeping Beauty and Snow White. So, yeah. So that's how that's how Shetland started, and I and I wrote. I was I was halfway through a, a Vera book, but it was really captured my imagination, and I I thought I couldn't really write a novel set there because I I'd never lived there in the winter. I'd only worked there from April till November, and anyway, it would be seem a real impertinence for an outsider to write a book set there, even though I'd been going back for some years. Um, but the, again, through the libraries, I met the local literature officer and he said, no, go for it and we'll help you. And he in, introduced me to a former cop who'd worked there. And, and so that's the first book, Raven Black, came out. And my editor at the time said, yeah, really like this book, but you'll only, you know, it'll have to be a standalone. It would stretch credibility too far to have, you know, kill more people in a place like Shetland. <laughs> well, it didn't I... seem to stop Midsummer Murders. <laughs> True, and I yeah I killed off a, f a few, but the BBC <laughs> scriptwriters killed off an awful lot more. 
See, this is why I write books set in India. There's one and a half billion people I can kill off, so I can keep going for quite a few yeah, years. Yeah, there are only 23,000 people in all the islands in Shetland. But if, if you enjoyed the TV show, there will be another series starting early next year, I think, because they've just about finished filming a new series of Shetland, so that'll be good, so, I think. So they're filming more series, but would you ever return to the books? I don't think so, no. I've, I've got a little project in my mind that might be a standalone. But, okay. um, a Shetland standalone? Um, sort of Northern Isles standalone. Okay. More Not to giving come on anything that. away. More to come on that one. <laughs> um, now, we've got a little bit of time before we open the floor to questions. So let's talk about integrity in writing. So one of the things that you may or may not know is that Anne is one of the most, one of the people with the most integrity in this in this industry. And I know this firsthand because when I finish writing, because I don't blur books that I don't enjoy. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, I asked her to blurb um, the first book in the Malabar House series when I'd finished my first series, and Anne immediately wrote back to me and said, "Vaz." I'll happily read it, <laughs> but I will only give you a positive review if I actually like it. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> and, you know, you don't often get that response in this industry because it's just understood. You know, you, you write to other writers and hopefully they like it and they'll send you something and then you'll do something similar for them. But I was, you know, I, I wasn't taken aback. <laughs> no, not at all, because I thought, you know, this person really cares about what they're reading and they care about the integrity of their craft and the integrity of their industry. And the reason I reference this, this is because in The Rising Tide, you write, or one of your characters says, all writers are parasites. They use the information that comes their way to make the story. Perhaps it was a kind of laziness. Now, it sounds like an unflattering portrait, but I think I, I understood well, we what you do, were trying to because say. because we're all observers, aren't we? That's right. I think, and we're, we... Most writers, not all writers, we're more observers than participants, so we're looking. And in one sense, that makes us parasites because we're using the experiences of other people and turning them into fiction. Or we're using our responses to other people and turning that into fiction too. And I think that's why it's brilliant that I've had so many jobs because I've you know, worked with lots and lots of different kinds of people. And I don't use any individual. I don't steal their personality. But I'm there. Is you might steal a small detail from each one, to and it's the small details that bring people and and places to life. Mm -hmm. Well, your characters are incredibly real. You know, reading a book like The Rising Tide, the people like Rick and and the others, they just they just feel real. They feel as if they're people that you can easily imagine sitting around a table with liking or not liking. And I think that probably is one of the reasons why your books, they resonate with so many readers around the world. Now, you started talking about process earlier on. And, you know, you said that you don't plot. Um, you know, if I, if I can quote you, Anne once said, writers who plot should be put in the stocks and horsewhipped, which I thought was quite I harsh. I didn't ever say that. You made that up. That is outrageous. Well, it's written in my notes, so it must be true. Yeah, but, but when I read one of your books, because I'm a plotter, right? That's why she said it. Um, but when I read your books, you know, I, I read a, a, a read a rising tide. It's nowhere there that I would believe that this this writer has not thought about what's coming next as we go through these chapters and the reveals happen and the twists happen and the turns happen. No, because if I knew if I knew how it was going to end, I wouldn't see any point in writing it. You know, it's like if you're a reader, you go to the last page first. No, that isn't how you do it. I, I think partly because for 20 years I didn't have any commercial success. So it had to be fun. And if I, it would just be a chore if I knew how it was going to end. It would just be, there would be no joy in it. Yeah. So it, I still write like a reader. So with... Um, with the rising tide, yeah, I bring these people together, but I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know who's going to die. Yeah. I find out what's happened at about the same time as Vera. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm glad you mentioned fun because if there's one thing that, that binds every single person in this room, every author here at Harrogate, is the fact that 
we have fun with very dark topics. We have fun with crime fiction. We are here because of the shared passion for the genre, but also just the love of reading, the love of books. And I know that you're having an absolute whale of a time now because of all the success that you've achieved and you're traveling, gallivanting, I should say, around the world. Um, we met recently in talk. New York. Well, <laughs> we met recently in New York. And Anne said, because um, I was doing something else and Anne was, was, was being fetted by, her, uh, fetted by her publishers. She says, Baz, why did you come and have lunch at my tiny little hotel? So I slept around New York from where I was staying with my wife's nephew. Um, to have a look at Anne's tiny little hotel. I didn't say it was tiny. <laughs> uh, it was a beautiful little boutique hotel. And, you know, there were people waiting on Anne, Anne hand and foot and following her around. Um, but it's clear that you're, you're absolutely enjoying every moment and you deserve every moment of yeah, it. Yeah, but what I love most, I tell you that this is true, and the, the travelling and, and this is fun too and it's lovely, but... It feels, this feels like work. What is fun is sitting at my kitchen table early in the morning every day and making up stories. Because I think humans are hardwired to tell stories, you know, from the kids in the playground who are pretending to be somebody else or pretending to be something else. We, that's what we do, and that's, that's my joy. That's my escape, okay. is fiction. And that's why, another reason why I celebrate libraries and all the things that they're doing and have set up a, a project called Reading for Wellbeing, which is working with GPs and um, community link workers within GP practices to, um, to bring people to books and to libraries. Because if you're, if you're going through a tough time or if you're in chronic, the best escape is to lose yourself in a book. And for people who maybe haven't read since school or are just not very confident readers, we bring them into reading groups. And reading can be very, very social as well. Hence, you know, the, having a reader in residence here in Harrogate every year, which is bringing people together into reading groups. So yeah. it, it's, it's an escape and it's a joy. And I'm so fortunate to be able still to do it. And that's what I love most mm. about what I do. So I took two things away from that. Firstly, Anne would far prefer to be on her own than with you guys. I'm sorry, you come a distant second. Um, but also, I mean, I years, mean ago, years ago, we, we did an event here where, uh, for libraries. That's for, right. For libraries. And, you know, we both talked about our love of libraries. And I, at the, at the time, was doing something for the reading agency where I'd written something for people whose, whose reading is, is slightly behind um, and it would help them. And they sent me around a bunch of prisons. And some of them were Category A and they were quite grim. And you could see the, the prisoners there would, you know, if, if they... But they're much off. easier to work with than school kids. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I yeah, think. Can, I mean, I've worked in prison. I think they're much easier to do than for the club. Well, class the, of rowdy school kids. <laughs> I, I, I did schools once and I said never again. Uh, but, the, but one of those prisons that I went to wasn't a Category A. It was a Category D. And that basically means it's an open prison. And I went in there. So they were basically uh, bankers and financiers, you know, the kind of people who'd swindled uh, people out of their life savings. And they were wandering around in shorts. They were allowed to go home in the evening. They'd bake me a cake, which made it all right, I guess, made them all all right. But, they, you know, they were... It, it, was, it was just an extraordinary experience to be able to go into these places and see people who perhaps have not had the opportunities that we've had uh, with the written word and to see how some of them, not all, but how some of them might be uh, able to pull themselves out of these troubles that they've got themselves into through reading. Yeah, I went into one prison and, uh, um, and it was a, a women's prison and there were dormitories rather than cells because there were mostly younger women there. And I can remember, I can't remember the book that I was taking in to run in the reading group, but um, one of the young lasses was so into it and so loved it that she would sit on her bunk and read to the other three lasses in the room. And they would just, they had their own little mini reading group that they got, got together overnight, which was just so nice. Yeah. Now we've got 15 minutes and this is usually the point where we open the floor to questions. I can't actually see anything because of these blinding CIA lights in my eyes, but if we can <laughs> oh, turn yeah, the we lights down, and if somebody's got a microphone, 
Oh, uh, oh, your hand's gone up here. It's, it's not a question, actually. You, you answered the question I had. But I would like to say that many, many years ago, I live north of Inverness. Many, many years ago, my wife and I decided to go to a book festival at Pitlockery. Yeah. And one of the speakers was a, was a lady called Anne Cleves, who we'd never heard of. <laughs> and, uh, uh, we went, and we were fascinated, and you were talking about your first book of the Shetlands. That's right. I remember, and I think Chris Stout, the fiddle player, was there with me, wasn't he? Right. Yes, <laughs> so yes. we had some wonderful <laughs> Shetland music as well. Yes, it was a wonderful day. Anyway, I've never forgotten it, and... Um, I've never forgotten it, and and I must admit, after that, we ha I've now read all your books, and in actual fact, I've just finished your last one, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Now, just in case I misheard, you were travelling around with a personal fiddler? Because <laughs> they do this in Germany, right? So in Germany, if you go to Germany and you do a book tour, uh, sometimes you have an actor an actor who comes around with you and does some sort of no. interpretation of your book? No, people who are into to, to folk music will perhaps know Chris Stout, but he was a Fair Islander, right. and he's just a brilliant, brilliant fiddle player. So, yeah. No, he came, and because, because I, went, I knew his parents, because they were on Fair Island, he came and just played some nice music for me. So, so Shetland music to set the scene. All right, next question. Next question. Um, basically, I've watched the whole of the Shetland series on television, and I just wondered where Jimmy Perez came from. Was it based on a real character? Uh, well, there is a guy in Fair Isle who is convinced that he is Jimmy Perez. <laughs> He's in his 80s. <laughs> but when I first met him, he was a younger man. Um, no, I think... Raven Black was, was going to be a standalone novel because that's what my, my editor had said. And it's a novel about what it is to be an outsider, I think. Um, so there's a young lass who's, who I think every teenage girl feels that she doesn't quite belong. And there's an older guy, Magnus, who has lived in Shetland for generations, but because he's a bit slow and a bit different, he doesn't quite belong. So I wanted a central character who didn't quite belong. So I created Jimmy Perez, who um, comes from Fair Isle. And most Shetlanders see Fair Isle as the end of the known universe and have never been. And Fair Isle kids, they go to school, the primary school in Fair Isle. Um, so they, you might be three or four kids in the school and you're probably related to most of them. And then at 11, you have to come out and board in Lerwick. And that's quite tricky, you know? If you come out and suddenly there are traffic lights and 2,000 kids that you're staying with and you have to stay in the hostel. And so, um, so that made him different. And, and then I gave him the Spanish name because there is a, an armada ship wrecked off Fair Isle called El Gran Griffon. And so it's not outside the bounds of possibility because there were 60 sailors scrambled ashore from that Spanish sailors. What they made of Fair Isle after a land of oranges and heat and wine and ended up with tatties and mutton. Uh, it wouldn't have been much fun, but it's not, a, a, a local woman could have married them. Uh, one of the, the, so that's how he, the name Perez is still there. Don't knock tatties. I don't know what they are, but don't knock them. Potatoes. <laughs> Next question. Hi. So I am lucky enough to have gone to Shetland on one occasion. Um, I went for the folk festival and I lived it. Yeah. And so I lived the stories of the Shetlands. Um, but the one thing I remember reading about the Shetlands, I didn't see this when I was there, was that they have little libraries in the bus shelters. Yeah, some of the, the, some of the islands do. And... So the, the library in Shetland is fabulous. For the size of the islands and the population, it's amazing. They do loads with kids. And they do have the book buses that go out to some of the islands. But um, my favourite library story in the Northern Isles is from Orkney. And they have book boxes that go out to the... They send on the little eight-seater planes out to the outer islands. And 
So people get their own delivery of boxes of books. That was, is... that was going to be one of my other questions, was whether you were ever going to consider doing something about Orkney rather than Shetland? Well, Shetland I might possibly be thinking about something. About... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't know that. So I wasn't... No, I love Orkney too, but I mean, yeah, it, it is Orkney is a bit sort of Shetland, but for wimps, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> oh, oh. I, oh, oh, I Is there anyone from Orkney here? I don't think you can say that with Highland Park coming from Orkney. I don't think that's, there's that much decent whiskey coming from Shetland. No, that oh. is true. That We're going to have true. a fight. No, I really couldn't fight my way out of the paper bag. Good gin, though. <laughs> no, I don't think so. But yeah. Casting shade on Shetland whiskey. Well, like I don't one. know very much about the Shetland whiskey, so if somebody wants to let me sample, so I'm happy to try it. Thanks very much. Next question. Um, I would mention I'd get all my books from the library, so I'm doing my bit there. <laughs> That's good. Um, yeah. I'm intrigued to know how you name your characters, what, what, how you give your characters the names that you do. I'm thinking particularly about Porteous and Stout. Oh, Porteous and Stout, yeah, that was fun. I don't know, they just sort of came to me as... They do sound like a musical, musical pair, don't they? Like a, an act, but no, I don't know how I came about with them. Well, Stout, because I think I'd just probably been in Fair Island. There are lots of Stouts in Fair Island. That's one of the island names, so maybe that stuck with me. And Porteous, I'm not quite sure why Porteous. It just seemed descriptive of the, the type of... The people, of, yeah. Um, quite often, if I'm looking, I try and get local names for the places where I'm setting the book. So the, the Devon books... Um, have um, like Charland and Shapland, which is and and things with Coombe on the end, so uh, and Conibeer, and so I, I'll try and use local names. And in Shetland, I would do the same, and and the same in in Northumberland actually, because we still have um, our ancestors, their ancestors, because I'm not not one of them come from the border reavers, so they're. Cares and Tates and Fenix and still and Robson, so yeah, they're, they're still there and the Charltons too. Thank you. Yeah. Next question. Do you ever make use of real crimes that stimulate you into thinking, "Oh, I could poison somebody with arsenic or whatever"? <laughs> no, not really. I suppose it's more. Um, I think your mate Abia once said that sometimes things made him angry and that prompted him to write a book. And I think probably the same goes for you too. And sometimes it's something that I've read in the newspapers that make me really grumpy and I want to explore it or write about it. Um, but not real life crimes, because in, in my books, the crimes aren't really that important. I mean, the, you know, the, I'm, I'm not really doing the Agatha Christie kill them with a shard of ice so they'll never be known. I mean, I do it quite, you know, mostly just hit them over the head with a blunt instrument yeah. because that isn't what the book's about. Most <laughs> of the books are about digging back into people's, finding out what's caused the stresses and the tensions and the relationships that's led somebody to commit murder because I, I don't really have monsters except... In the raging storm, I do think I have created a bit of a monster for the first time, mm. which was quite interesting to do. But usually I don't. And so the other things are more important than the crime, in a way. Mm. What about to, to you? Up, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I find that using facts from history, for me, me works because there are things that happen during the period that I write about that uh, are quite important to me. And the latest book in my series is called Death of a Lesser God for a reason, but it's about a white man who was born and grew up in India, James Whitby, who is convicted of murdering an Indian national and is due to be hanged. But he claims that he's being punished for the, for the sins of the Raj, and he didn't do it. And, you know, the, my protagonists have 11 days to figure out whether he did it or not. But the reason that I wrote that particular plot was because during the Raj, many white men had gotten away with the murders of Indians. So, you know, out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of murders, um, there were no convictions whatsoever. A few people were tried, but they were, were never sentenced. 
And I suppose I wanted to turn that narrative on its head. So sometimes you're right. It's there are things that make us... They, they, they evoke an emotional reaction in us. It doesn't have to necessarily be anger. Yeah. You know, it's too far in the past for me to be angry about it, but to rectify some of that information through the books that I write. And I, get, and I know that you do it because I see it in the books that you write. Now, you're not an angry person. At least you haven't seen Anne. Angry. You really don't <laughs> want to make her angry. So. No, I think... But it, it is... And I think be, the great thing about crime fiction is that we can look at issues of social justice because because the way that things have gone, you know, the cuts to, to social services and the cuts to the mental health services, that now the police service are, seem to be our first responder. So if we have a teenage kid who's running away from care or an elderly guy who's wandering, who's got dementia, it seemed, or somebody having a psychotic episode and becoming quite aggressive, it's the police that are called out to deal with yeah. it. Yeah. And that seems... That, and that gives us, I think, the license to write about those things in a way that in other times we, we perhaps wouldn't. And it, it's, it's perfectly realistic that we can write about those things. So we've probably got time for one, maybe two questions. So we'll hand up here. One there and one there. So. There we go. Those are the two. Hi. Uh, it's been lovely to hear about your passion for libraries and younger readers. We have a number of teachers in our family and uh, a question to both of you. Have you or would you consider writing a children's story? I wouldn't. And I stopped going into schools to work with kids when the, t the, the curriculum became so restricted. So the last time I went in and did a workshop with children, they were getting so fired up and so excited and they had all these ideas. And I was followed round by somebody who was a literacy specialist who was asking them about adverbs and prepositions. And I thought, <laughs> if anything's going to kill a love of reading and writing, that would be it. And I'm just horrified that we're not allowing our children to be creative in the way that I was allowed to be creative. I didn't know anything about grammar until I did Latin in grammar school. And in, prim in, in primary school, I was just making up stories and telling stories and nobody was following me around, making me analyse every sentence that I'd written. And I think it's absolutely shocking. So... Yeah. It is. Um, from, for my part, I also come from a family of teachers. Well, two of my sisters are, are secondary school teachers, and one of them is an English teacher and is always on at me to try and write a kid's book so that she can basically invite me in for free to talk at her school <laughs> every second week. Uh, but I find it quite frightening, a frightening proposition, because she shows me sometimes the essays that her kids, who are aged 13, 14, 15, 16, are writing, and she works in a, in a, in a deprived area where there's a lot of uh, people from, uh, from overseas, and the priority isn't reading, it's at home, it's, it's making money and trying to survive. And the reading skill levels are way, way behind what we would consider to be the norm. And, you know, I sort of despair. I know it's not their fault, but I despair because I feel for them. And I feel, how are you going to be able to get a, you know, a good job? How are you going to be able to function in society if at this age you cannot put a sentence together? And it really makes me sad when I see that. And in a supposedly developed nation, we really shouldn't be in that position of leaving people behind. And I know that's unfair to say, because yes, sometimes people just do not, do not have the skills, and that's okay. Uh, but I think we could certainly make a much, much better effort. So last question of the day. Uh, I would just like to thank you very much indeed for your Shetland murder mystery afternoon tea idea. Oh, yes, that was good fun. <laughs> Which we had uh, very good fun with, actually. We were doing it in our Rotary group, and we used the recipes that your Shetland ladies <laughs> had um, offered for the afternoon tea. Yeah. Um, and we raised uh, a lot of money, uh, as well as having a really good time to help with polio eradication. Uh, and it's a really good idea. My question to you is, can we have another one at some stage? <laughs> if you go onto the Pan Macmillan website, I think there are, there are uh, three or four murder, different murder ah, mystery scripts on good. there. So do go on and, and you can, you're, anybody is free to use them. So if you want to use them to do in your library or to raise money for charity, 
feel free to go onto the PenMap website and they should be there, I think. If not, Pam McMillan will be able to get the, the, the scripts to you. And the, the resultant winner had a, a copy of your book that your agent sent us, which was very helpful too, actually. <laughs> Good. So thank you very much for that. Thank you. Well, what a lovely way you. to end. Thank you. So I'm just going to say, I'm just going to finish by saying some nice things about Anne because she cringes every time I do this. And, you know, that's, I love making Anne cringe. Um, I'm interviewing him in a couple of weeks. Just, <laughs> just wait, Buzz Carl. So, you know, we've known each other for a decade, and <laughs> Anne is one of the people that I respect most in this industry because she won the Outstanding Contribution Award yesterday at Theakston's. I think many of you must have been here to see her receive that. But she's also got the Vasim Khan Outstanding Contribution Award for being a lovely human being. <laughs> and I've learned, you know, we, we, we've done things the hard way. You know, it took me 20 years and six rejected novels to get published. And as Anne described, she spent 20 years just writing books, writing books until Vera became a thing. And I've learned so much over her over the last decade, not just in terms of the writing craft, but in terms of how authors should present themselves and how they can behave in what is quite a difficult industry. You know, it's, it's hard to understate just what a tough, tough business this, uh, this publishing industry is. And all authors, regardless of the levels of success they achieve, n are, are always eternally grateful to people like yourselves who buy our books, who allow us to have these careers and to allow us to live out our, essentially our childhood, childhood dreams. And Anne has never forgotten that. And, as, and I learn from her how to appreciate that every single time we meet, which is why I love her to bits. So, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to HIF Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com. <laughs>